0: All right, friends. Invite you to uh, wrap up your conversations. Good luck. Give you a moment to fill up your coffee cups. This morning, uh, our speaker is uh, Peter Ash. Peter is a a long, long time friend and a member of uh, Jericho Ridge. He is the uh, the founder and the CEO of Under the Same Sun, uh, which is one of our mission partners and Under the Same Sun works with um, people with albinism in Tanzania and working against the discrimination and the uh, uh, the hardships that they face uh, in that culture simply because they are born with with the condition that here in Canada doesn't seem like it should make any difference in terms of how you're treated, but there it's quite significant, and uh, so this morning Peter is going to be speaking, but first we're going to have the story of the scripture that Peter's going to be speaking, uh, acted out, read out to us by these fine people up here.
1: We're just reading, not acting. (laughs) (laughs) So James and John, Zebedee's sons, came up to Jesus.
2: Teacher, we have something we want you to do for us.
3: What is it? I'll see what I can do. Uh,
2: Arrange it mm, so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory, one of us at the right and the other at your left.
3: You have no idea what you're asking. Are you capable of drinking the cup I drink, of being baptized in the baptism I'm about to be plunged into?
0: Sure, why not?
3: Come to think of it, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized in my baptism. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. There are other arrangements for that.
1: When the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. Jesus got them together to settle things down.
3: You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. This is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served. And then give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage.
1: They spent some time in Jericho. As Jesus was leaving town, trailed by his disciples and a parade of people, a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting along the roadside. When he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by, he began to cry out,
3: Jesus, son of David,
1: mercy, have mercy on me. Many tried to hush him up, but he yelled all the louder, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Jesus stopped in his tracks.
3: Call him over.
1: It's your lucky day. Get up. He's calling you to come. Throwing off his coat, he was on his feet at once and came to Jesus. Jesus said,
3: What can I do for you? Rabbi, I want to see. Go on your way. Your faith has saved and healed you.
1: In that very instant, he recovered his sight and follow Jesus down the road.
2: Thank you for that uh, wonderful reading. Um, I was getting excited when I heard about the acting part. (laughs) But uh, it was pretty dramatic, so it came pretty close to to acting, I think. On December the 30th, 1968, a few hours before going to celebrate New Year's Eve, at the Casino Sands, Frank Sinatra, yes, the famous Frank Sinatra, recorded his version of a song that would become infamous around the world, that would put him on the map internationally as a singer and performer. It's said that he recorded the song in just one take, something artists almost never do. It was released in 1969 and it was entitled My Way. I'm sure you've heard it. It was an LP and then as a single. It rapidly reached number 27 on the Billboard Top 100. Charts and number two on the easy listening chart in the US. In the UK, the single achieved a still to this day unmatched record, becoming the recording with the most weeks inside the top 40, spending 75 consecutive weeks from April of 69 to September of 71. No doubt most of you have heard the song, and no, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I won't try and sing to you. I'll stick to speaking, but here are the words. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this, I did it my way. I planned each chartered course, each careful step along the byway and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Although this work became Frank Sinatra's signature song, Interestingly enough, I found out that his daughter, Tina, says the singer came to actually despise the song. He didn't like it, quoting Tina. That song stuck and he couldn't get it off his shoe. He always thought that song was self-serving and self-indulgent. Anybody here like going to chapters? Maybe not this time of year, but (laughs) generally? Or browsing for Amazon? on Amazon for books? Any of you big book readers? Well, let me tell you that one of the largest and fastest growing segments of the publishing industry is guess what? The self-help section. In 2016, the US self-help industry, and yes, it is a cottage industry, was worth about $9.9 billion, just in self-help book publication and printing. According to the report from Research and Markets, market researchers have predicted that the industry will be worth over $13 billion within the next three years by 2022. Think of the inherent contradiction of this, though, for a moment, if you would. You're reading a book written by someone else telling you that you can, in effect, help yourself. Think about it. It's self-help, but I need you to help me so I read your book. Well, I'm convinced that I'm helping myself. Do you see the inherent contradiction? The notion of self-help betrays itself, does it not? Self-help. You're talking to a guy and looking at a man who knows all about it. And this morning, I'm going to spend some time, as we go through the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10, looking at what this interaction you just saw played out is all about and getting into the heart of God, hopefully. But in the story of that, I've understood that to most impactfully touch you and bring God's love to you, and God's truth to you, and God's word to you, I need to have an intersection and share an intersection of how my story intersects with God's story. Because we all have two stories, don't we? Every one of you here this morning has a story. You have a journey. It started the day you were born, and it's been unfolding day by day, week by week, month by month. Every consecutive chapter of your story is being written. You're very familiar with your story. Those around you know your story to varying degrees. Those closest to you know it well. But there's simultaneously this other story going on, God's story, the kingdom story. Whether you see it or not, whether you know it or not, it is going on. If you have spiritual eyes to see, you'll see it. And this motif of blindness helps us move into that as we go through the passage this morning. And so this morning I am called to show you how my story, because that's all I can give you, friends, is my story. I don't have anything else to bring to the table, except for God's story as well, and how there's been this intricate dance between both stories, making me who I am and who I'm not. Some of you who know me well in the congregation know that for the last six months, I've been on a sabbatical journey. You're talking to, you're looking at a man here who, at age 16, left his parents' home, and I have been economically self-supporting ever since. My parents, for a variety of reasons, were unable to assist me. We were quite poor growing up, didn't have much, quite a humble family economically. My dad worked for the railway. He had a grade 8 education from Newfoundland. We lived in low rental apartments in a rough part of town in inner city Montreal. Me and my brothers often sharing a bedroom. It wasn't an easy upbringing. Two of us were born legally blind. I have a condition called albinism, which was referred to earlier where my eyes are affected. I can't drive a vehicle, I could never see the blackboard in school. My mom suffered from mental illness from my earliest memory and more about that later. My father had a series of his own challenges including a drinking problem. And through all of my childhood years, I learned that I needed to be there helping and taking charge and providing stability and direction for everyone else, as did my brothers. So I became a helper. I became a leader. I became, whether I wanted it to to be or not, a kind of rock in the middle of a storm. And this impacted my relationships, both within my family and within my relationship with God, or should I say in my early years, my non-existent relationship with God. I wasn't raised to know him. I never went to Sunday school. My parents had stopped going to church for the time I came along, the youngest of three boys. My two older brothers had gone to Sunday school occasionally. And so I never really knew who he was. He seemed mostly irrelevant to me. And as the story unfolds, I came to know him. And I'll get more to that later in the message about how that happened. But suffice it to say, at a moment of brokenness, when my life was torn apart and I had no hope, at age 16 I knelt down and invited Jesus into my life. And he changed me forever. And I'm still struggling to know him better. And I've had a difficult journey ever since I came to know him. So just in case you ever get this idea that if you enter into a relationship with God, it's smooth sailing therein. I can't find that in scripture. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. To know him is to enter into his sufferings. So anybody who sells you a bill of goods that says, if you have a faith in Christ, everything will be uphill and rosy and prosperity all around. It's not the scripture I see, and it's certainly not the life I've lived. But God has been present in a variety of ways, showing up at sometimes opportune or other times inopportune times. Which brings me to the subtitle of my message. Is it about me? Or him? Or him? or both that's the big question is not the world around us tells us it's about me doesn't it as I mentioned earlier you walk into chapters and one of the biggest and growing sections is the self-help section we heard words like self-actualization we hear words like empowerment we hear realizing yourself what's most important is what you want that you get your needs met For many of you who don't know my story, I've had a variety of careers in my life. I did my undergrad in theology, my master's in counseling psychology, and I had a career in pastoral ministry for over a decade. And I'd have uh, past couples come for counseling, pre-marital or or marital counseling. And it was amazing how they had this notion that a a good marriage was a 50-50 contribution, and I was always quick to correct them. I can't find that in Scripture. It's 100% and 100%. But it was, what could I get out of the relationship? And as soon as that's your starting point, as soon as that's the primary focus, you're set for failure. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't have desires in relationships, and and they're valid and they're legitimate, we all have them, and there's an appropriateness to that. But the fixation of our culture has been on self-satisfaction and self-sufficiency. And look where it's led us. We have record high rates of divorce, of fractured families, of drug and alcohol addiction, of alienation. They can't, the pharmaceutical industry can barely produce enough pills to medicate all of our anxiety and depression. How's it working out, this self-help industry? How's it touching the deepest needs of the human soul? Tell me, what do you think? We're fractured, we're a broken people. And so i would say to you that with this automatic fixation on ourselves because the moment we come out of our, our our the mother's our mother's womb guess what we do we gasp for life we cry the first sound that we make in this world is to cry it's a wailing and often the last sound we make when we leave this earth is to wail because we need something we need oxygen we need sustenance we need food our hearts need relationship our souls need god My soul will never find its rest until it finds its rest in thee, O God, Augustine said. And so it's completely natural to live life as though it's all about us, is it not? It's the most natural thing in the world, guys, to get up in the morning and think it's about me. I don't have to work at it. I don't have to practice it. I don't have to refine that skill. I'm pretty darn good at it. It's about Peter. If my wife or my son say something I don't like, it's easy for me to be hurt. If they don't do something I want them to do or a friend doesn't come through for me the way I wish he would, it's easy for me to feel missed. If someone doesn't respond to me the way I'd hoped or ignores me, it's easy for me to feel hurt. Maybe that's just me, I'm sure you guys don't go through that but (laughs) it's completely natural to live life as though it's all about us. Those of us with children, of course, um, are always teaching this lesson, aren't we? You know, it's not all about you. Any of you have ever said that? I've had kids before. But here's the thing. Guess where they learned it? That it's all about them. A, it's their nature, and B, they had pretty good role models, probably. I'm sure the people closest to me have learned that I can be pretty self-focused. It's an ugly part of me I don't like talking about, but to get real with life and to get real with God, we need to talk about it, Brothers and sisters. The disciples were there, weren't they? Verse 35 to 45. James and John, sons of Zebedee, in Mark 10, they come to him and they say, Teacher, what do you want us to... They said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Just think of the audacity of this. This is Jesus, the creator of the universe, incarnate, God incarnate in human form, the Son of God, come to earth, as we talk about at Christmas. And these are two of his three inner circle. There was three in his inner circle and these were two of them and they're going around, they've been hanging around with Jesus for almost three years by now because Jerusalem's coming they're at Jericho, they're going to Jerusalem, they're going to the crucifixion and they haven't got the memo yet I don't think (laughs) despite gospels full of teachings and the only question they can come up with was they said teacher and by the way the Greek word here for teacher is the teacher or the master very impersonal, very positional We want you to do whatever we ask. Wow. So, how arrogant, hey? I'm sure none of us have ever prayed that way. God, I want you to do whatever I ask. Here's the list. Get out the scroll. I got 75 prayer requests, and you better darn well come through on them. Number one. Number two. Number three. No, we probably couch it better than that. We're probably not quite that arrogant. But look at verse 36, because the question is going to be repeated in exactly the same structure of words in a few verses later to a different person. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They said, we want you to do whatever we ask. We want like carte blanche. He said, okay, let's get specific. Let's drill down a bit. What do you want from me? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Well, not a big deal, right? <laughs> kind of a small ask. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or can you be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with? We can. The arrogance continues. Jesus said to them, (laughs) you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left, it's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared ideally by the heavenly father he's referring 41 when he then heard about this they became indignant when the 10 heard this so 12 disciples so these two guys james and john have their own little um melee with jesus they get him in a corner they're asking for the prime positions the right and the left hand jesus is on the throne he's the boss man they're on the right they're on the left they want the positions of power now understandably the other 10 are a little ticked right they become indignant with James and John. So their emotions aren't around worshiping Jesus or humility. They're around being angry at their friends. So lest you think the 10 are any better, they aren't. They're just ticked. Maybe they didn't get to ask the question first, or maybe they're afraid Jesus will grant it to them. Who knows? But Jesus calls them together and says to all 12, you know that those who are who are regarded as rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you and sue so whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so here it is i mean these guys are the best and brightest we got like These are the 12 people Jesus picked on the face of the planet in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And these are the best and brightest. There's a book called The Training of the Twelve I read in seminary, about 700-page book. Talks about the, the biographies and life stories of all these 12. And they were picked for very specific reasons. They ranged from being tax collectors, which were defamed and despised, to fishermen, to everything in between. But for some reason, Jesus selected these 12, and they represented his hope to bring the Christian gospel to the world and to change the world. And these three especially were the inner circle. That was Peter, James, and John. And look at them. The best he could come up with, the best the world had to offer, and all they can think about is what they want, what they need. So if the 12 are fixated on this, I think we're part of the club, ladies and gentlemen, this morning. So to become concerned about yourself is totally normal and it's not entirely wrong we need to make sure our health is taken care of we need to make sure our emotional and spiritual well-being is taken care of i went through a very serious experience of burnout and i had to take a six-month sabbatical which i'm coming to the end of in mid-january i had to attend to my well-being and so that feedback was given to me in a variety of ways in my life and so attending to yourself is not wrong it's not bad it's normal it's human but you see when that happens inside a vacuum without the presence and interception of Jesus in the story when it's just about self I dare say the life, your life will probably become a repeated train wreck I'm just going to give it to you straight because even with Jesus it's tough without him I don't even want to try and so that brings me to my second point later on but You see, here we have the self versus servant model of leadership that Jesus talks about. He talks about how in the world, you know, you're the big grand poobah, the guy on top, and everyone scurries to your service. But he says, it shouldn't be this way with you. He who wants to be great should be last. He who wants to be a a leader should be a servant. He should give. He should care. She should serve. She should minister. And in the presence of that giving, in that presence of self-sacrifice, something new and live, and powerful comes to be in your life. Many years ago, when I was taking my master's program, in my first year, I had a seminary professor who made a statement, you know, I studied post-secondarily for six years, and I remember maybe a handful of statements after all of it, man, that was expensive. (laughs) So this one's worth a lot of money, but I'm so thankful I remember it. He looked at our class, and this man has an older man, been through a lot in personal life and ministry and family, and he said this, Unless a man has been broken by God, he cannot be trusted with power. Hear it again. Prize to the men and the ladies. Unless a man has been broken by God, he cannot be trusted with power. You only need to look at some of the televangelist scandals that happened a few decades ago in the United States to see this, right? The wealth and the power and the fame that some of them had and then their lives would break in sexual sin and they'd be broken mere shadows of themselves before their congregations and life would break them but God's giving us a different invitation today you'll hear it later that we submit ourselves at the foot of the cross and we choose to be broken in his presence Yes, you heard me right, we choose to be broken. Most of us will never choose to be broken. The same professor said there are two ways in his experience of 40 years of ministry and counseling that he discovered there's two primary ways people mature in their life, become more mature people, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. There's two big ways. There's one group of people, he said, who get up one morning and they say, I really want to grow up. I ought to grow up and be more mature. And I want to be deeper and less self-centered and uh, more focused on others and God, and they work hard at that and they become that way. The second group of people, life just kicks the crap out of them, and that's how they grow up. He said, by the way, the first group is about 0.1% of the population. The second group is 99.9%. That's how we grow up, isn't it? At least that's how I've grown up. To the extent I've grown up, it's because things have not gone well. Most really important things are being done by people who aren't doing very well. And I discovered that who's along the journey with me when I'm not doing well determines the outcome. Unless a man has been broken by God, he cannot be trusted with power. After graduating from my theological degree, my first assignment in pastoral ministry was in a northern church at the far reaches of northern Manitoba, 150 miles south of the polar bears. I exaggerate not. There were polar bears in my community. They shouldn't have been, but they were. And a member of my congregation phoned me once. In a, She was excited, and she was hysterical, and she said, I have a polar bear in my driveway. What do I do? And I thought, why are you calling me? (laughs) Like, I'm the pastor of your church. You want me to pray for you? I can do that. You can pray for the polar bear. I can do that. I said, call the natural resource officer. He'll come and deal with it. But she was hysterical. So this was a tiny, isolated town in the middle of nowhere. And I remember arriving there, in my first ministry assignment and it was like one in the morning and it was February and it was like minus 46 and it was pitch black and I go into this little trailer and there's frost inside the trailer on the walls and I think to myself people come to this town for one of two reasons for God or money and it certainly wasn't money for me I was making a thousand dollars a month below the poverty line but God had called me there and I went there joyfully and I served for five years And it was a time of brokenness. It was a difficult time. Many difficult things happened in my life toward the end of that ministry. But God met me. And over and over again in my life, God has brought brokenness to me, whether it's been health problems, whether it's been bringing me to a part of the world I vowed I'd never go to, Africa. I remember in, b- in seminary and college, I'd hear all these speakers talking about how God called them to Africa to minister to people who were lost. And they talk about witchcraft and witch doctors. And every single time, week in, week out, month in, month out, I thought, I'm not going there. I'm going to get a nice church in North America. And I'll maybe be a seminary professor. And that's my deal. And I'll serve God. And that's go. okay, right, Lord? He had different ideas. And here I am dealing right in the middle of witchcraft and seeing the most horrific crimes known to man, when I see people's limbs torn apart, and children brutalized in ways I can't even talk about. The imageries still cause post-traumatic stress for me, the things I've had to see, the stories I've had to hear. They're beyond the worst kind of trauma you've probably ever seen. Bodies dismembered, simply because people hate them for who they are. And God called me to that, and so the brokenness kept going. Betrayal at the hands of staff and those I cared about. God kept breaking me and breaking me. And I I, I would be here all day telling all the stories, so I won't. But what I will say, through experiences of abandonment and abuse, God broke me. And in that presence, I struggled to find him. It wasn't always easy or simple, and sometimes he eluded my grasp. I knew he was there. Has he ever eluded your grasp in the darkest hours? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. My cup overflows. Sometimes the cup feels like it's overflowing. Sometimes it's not. But one thing I do know is that in my darkest valley, he's always been there. He's never failed me. Even when my emotions don't tell me he's there, my spirit knows that he is. And out of that brokenness, God caused me to keep saying to me, Peter, come and serve me. It's not about you, it's about me. And then we go on to the next point, that it's completely supernatural to live as though it's all about him. See, you can't get there from here without Jesus. I'm putting it right on the table for you. You are naturally, I am naturally wired to make it about me. Your kids are wired, your friends are wired, your spouse is wired, your family is wired to think it's about them, just like you are, just like I am. Until something cosmic happens, until there's a disruption into your world, that's supernatural, you won't live any other way. But it is supernatural to think that it's all about him. Look at verse 46 through 48 with me. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus Indeed, opposition only fans the flame of his persistence in this account. The kingdom of heaven, it has been said, is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. Bartimaeus is desperate, and his desperation is a doorway to faith, says J.R. Edwards, scholar on the book of Mark. My mother taught me this. I remember as a young child, I wanted to be an astronaut. A lot of kids want to be astronauts, but I really wanted to be an astronaut. I'm old enough that we actually had encyclopedias. We didn't have Wikipedia. And we had these encyclopedias in the basement, and I I know you're going to think I'm strange, but I actually used to crack it open and read it from the beginning to the end, each volume of it. Uh, Maybe I was just really bored, maybe I was really interested. I think it was a bit of both. And I got fixated on space and astronomy and all the planets, and I knew where they were located, the distance from the sun and the earth and their temperatures, and how many moons they had, and I, I really had fantasized about flying into outer space. And I was dead set on being an astronaut. I remember one day, I'm going on and on about this to my mom. might, it might have been, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, something like that. And I said, Mom, I'm going to be an astronaut. She said, Peter, I have some news for you. And I, said, she said, I said, what's that? She says, you'll never be an astronaut. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, that's a horrible mother. Aren't you supposed to indulge your children and tell them they can be anything they want to be and be supportive and all that? It's the best thing she ever did. I said, Mom, why can't you be an astronaut? She said, Peter, you're legally blind. You have 10% vision. You have 80% less vision than everybody else. You'll never... Be an astronaut, because to be an astronaut, you have to fly a plane. You'll never pass the eye test to fly a plane. You'll never be an astronaut. My eyes began to well up with tears. Both at the news that I wouldn't be an astronaut, and at the moment, my mom felt a bit cruel. Then she said, here's some good news. There's thousands of other jobs you can do. It's just that one. She reshaped my life. But she said, if you set your mind to something, you'll achieve it. And she said, never let anybody tell you what you can and cannot do. Only you know what you're capable of. Only you know your limitations. Don't let others decide who you'll be. So she was cruel and kind all at once. And I thank her for it. She taught me about persistence. She said, Peter, when you go to school, you'll need an education. and You'll need it because you are legally blind, you are disabled. And the world isn't built for people like you. The world won't be kind to your limitations. You'll never see anything on the blackboard, and so somehow you're going to have to figure that out. Don't know how, but you will, and I'll help you. And so I never gave up, and she said, Peter, you'll have to work twice as hard as everybody else in your class, because I didn't go to a school for disabled children. I was in a public school. There was no assistance for disabled kids when I was in school, not like we have today. There was no special teachers. There was no special ed, no uh, assistance or support. Zero, like none. They just chuck you in the public school and hope for the best. she says, "You just got to work really hard. And it's going to be twice as hard. You're going to have climb the whole time. But I know you can do it. I believe in you. You can do anything you set your mind to. Don't ever give up," she said. And so she taught me that I would need to d- rely both on the strength that I had in me, but then she added this. She said, one morning, I, one afternoon rather, I came home, I think I was in grade six, five or six, grade six I think. It was an elementary school outside uh, the city of Montreal and uh, I couldn't play baseball. I could never play team sports because I couldn't see the ball. And I tried to explain this to my teacher, and she didn't want to listen. She says, No, you're being lazy. You have a bad attitude. You should play and participate like all the other students. I'm thinking it's not about being lazy. I can't see the ball. It'll hit me in the face, but she's not getting this. And of course, I'm I'm light sensitive. That's why I have these tinted glasses. And so I said, I just can't do it. There was no reasoning with her. She was forcing me outside. I'm a grade six student. She's a teacher. So what do I do? I have to listen, right? So I'm lining up, and I'm at bat. And I'm shaking. My hands are shaking. Because I know darn well I'm going to miss that ball. I don't have a chance. And to make matters worse, the sun was coming right at me. And I had these glasses that were super expensive that my parents couldn't afford that I'm wearing. I thought, that's the only chance I have. If I can ever hit this ball, I've got to wear them. They have a bit of a tint in them, and they can help me a bit. So I'm up there, and the ball's coming, and I swing, and of course I miss, but it's the first than I miss. It hits me right in the face. Boom, right in the center. breaks my glasses. All of my fellow students are laughing at me. They're all mad. I was the last to get picked, by the way, when they picked the team members. And the commentary was, we're stuck with him. So I have this moment of embarrassment, of shame, of anger. And I come home from mom, my, to my mom, quite upset. I said, mom, I'm a freak, I'm a weirdo, you know. Uh, I hate this. I'm, I'm, I'm just a freak. And she says, I said, there's no one in my school like me. And she said, Peter, you're right. There's no one in your school like you. And you're not a freak, you're not a weirdo, you're unique. God made you the way you are. and God doesn't make mistakes. So she reordered my world time and time again. She never hid what I couldn't do. She was always brutally honest about it. The worst thing you can do to your kids is hide reality from them. But then give them hope in the midst of reality. When you read this passage about this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, he shows us this, doesn't he? Remember, in the first century, beggars would sit on the side of the road. It says he sat on the side of the road and he begged. Because the belief system in the day was that if you were blind in particular, you had God's curse on you. You were like a cursed thing. You weren't a person. There was no social welfare. You literally survived on the charity and goodness of people throwing you a few bucks, much like a homeless person might today, but with a lot less support systems than are even available today. And so this man sitting there, Bartimaeus, no other healing in the scripture, in the gospel of John, is Jesus' name, the person being healed, except here. They always say the blind man, the lame man. Here it says Bartimaeus, not only Bartimaeus, but which means son of Timaeus. Bar meaning son, son of Timaeus. And it says he was shouting, but guys, listen to me carefully. This word shouting, the English translation doesn't do it justice. It means wailing in a disturbing screech. The same word in Revelation 12 too is used to speak of a woman screaming in the agony of childbirth. Now those of uh, the women here might know what that scream is like. Uh, You know, it can be a disturbing scream. It can be loud and piercing and very intense and very present. This is the type of word used here to talk about Bartimaeus. He wasn't just saying, Jesus, uh, Jesus over here, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then they tell him, shh, you've been shushed. This guy was shushed. The crowd's shutting him down. Like, the master's busy. He's on his way to Jerusalem. You're a beggar. You're low on the totem pole. You know, you're lucky to get a couple bucks, keep your mouth shut. Don't bother the, the Jesus of Nazareth. So what does he do? Is he compliant? Does he listen? Does he do as he's told? He is completely contrary. And it says he screams all the louder. You're trying to shut me down. Forget that. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is a picture of abject humility. It doesn't get much more humble than this. A blind man and a beggar addressing the king of the universe he doesn't call him jesus of nazareth as the crowd does he uses a different term he says what jesus son of david that harkens back to the book of isaiah where it talks about how the the messiah will be from david's kingdom david's throne and he will cause the blind to see perhaps bartimaeus had heard this story in the synagogue and knew that one day a deliverer would come that would make the blind to see that would deliver his people and he would be the son of david No one we're told here is referring to him as son of David. Everyone else is calling him Jesus of Nazareth. It was a very human description. He was born in Nazareth. That was his geography. He'd be like Peter of Langley. Had nothing to do with his divine status. But somehow this, this blind, humble beggar knew who Jesus was. He knew something they didn't know, such that he screamed. He had a faith that was humble, he had a faith that was genuine, he had a faith that was real. I want to tell you a story about my dad because when I hear of Bartimaeus I think of my dad Donald Ash born in 1927 died when I was 17 he came to know Jesus when I was 16 and God took him from me a year later still don't know why to this day and I miss him but he was a picture of abject humility. Born and raised in Newfoundland, the poorest province of our country. Wasn't even a country when he was born there. He was born in 27. They didn't join till 49. They lived in poverty, didn't have electricity, didn't have running water, long, long, long after the rest of Canada did. They joined because they had no health care from England. He went to school till grade eight and then left home, him from a family of 10 kids. And the way it was back then was the boys would leave home and they would usually move to the mainland, which by the way is anywhere but Newfoundland. There's two worlds for Newfies. There's Newfoundland and everywhere else. And they left. And he got a job at a paint factory in Montreal. He rented a room, the cheapest one he could find. And every penny he earned that he didn't need to pay his rent, he sent home to Newfoundland. He was in service to his family. Who were raised in the Salvation Army. They were raised to understand the importance of giving to God and others. But he was a humble man. He married my mother. They were in love, a very beautiful couple. But shortly after they were married, he discovered my mom struggled with a serious mental illness from childhood trauma and possibly a chemical imbalance. And that mental illness escalated over the course of their marriage and the course of our childhood to the point where she engaged in suicide attempts six times during my childhood, that I recall. She was hospitalized most of my childhood off and on. Brilliant woman, very intelligent, very capable, very outspoken. But when she had episodes of de- depression and anxiety, she often became suicidal. And he held the family together. He was there for us. He was a rock. And I often wonder what the source of his strength was, because he came from such a humble family with so little. And he had drifted away from God, he told me later on, for, for many years. I think he was angry at God for letting all this happen. And I was in my teen years, 14, 15. My two older brothers had left home. I'm the youngest of three. I'm living alone with my parents. My mom's mental illness had reached um, a real bad stage. And I come home one night after partying and drinking, doing drugs, trying to dull the pain of my life. And I come in drunk and high, way past the time I was supposed to be into our small little apartment in the tough neighborhood we lived in. And I expected to get in trouble from my dad. I expected him to yell at me, and I would have deserved it. And he knew right away that I was intoxicated and likely was into trouble. And he said, Peter, I've got a bed set up for you here near the, so I can hear you if you need me during the night if you're sick. I've got a bucket in case you throw up. And uh, I'm just glad you're home. I'm glad you're safe. I love you. We're going to talk about this in the morning. that man showed me the love of the Father in a way I've never seen before. i never seen since. That's the love of the Father. He takes you just as you are. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've been through, no matter what's trapping you, no matter what hurt or trauma you bear, no matter what you've perpetrated, he says to you, it's going to be okay. I love you just as you are. I think our world needs that message. And I'm not big enough to get it. I'm not big enough to offer that kind of unconditional love all on my own. I need someone bigger and stronger than me. As a teenage, broken teenage boy, I needed my father. And as a 50-plus-year-old man who's 54 now, I still need my father. Many things my dad didn't give me, but he gave me the most important thing. He gave me Jesus. Because later, not many months after, I came home another evening, and I saw my dad kneeling by the couch on the telephone with the Salvation Army officer, tears coming down his pace, begging Jesus to come into his life, and change him, and he rededicated his life to Christ. He was a new man. when I say a new man, he didn't his personality didn 't change overnight, but there was something different in his heart. He was never unkind, but it was just this difference about him that was real he kept inviting me to church, I tell, kept blowing him off telling him to go fly a kite I was hard, I was angry eventually I came and once one had an evening service I accepted Christ and after that I remember another night coming home where I was actually getting ready for bed my dad was kneeling by the couch praying and I remember him saying God save my sons God, save my sons, all of them. And one by one, all three of us eventually came to know Jesus. The the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But he was a man of humility and brokenness, this grade-eight educated Newfoundland guy who worked for the railway his whole life at a job that paid very little as a stockkeeper who cared for his mentally ill wife and was a rock of Gibraltar for his sons. Gave us Jesus. He was willing to humble himself before God. And that brings me to my last point. Our life is radically altered only when we submit to his divine disruption. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Listen again. Verse 49, look at it carefully. Jesus stopped. You know what the the original language means? That's why I use the message for the dramatized version. It means he stood still. Or better yet, he stopped in his tracks. There is no other instance like this in the Gospels where Jesus stops in his tracks. It wasn't like he was just walking along. and Oh, yeah, come over here. It wasn't a casual thing. He was stopped dead in his tracks. He stood still. This something about this man made God in human flesh stand still. He stopped in his tracks. There's something about this Bartimaeus guy that's completely different than the disciples. Remember the disciples? What were they on about? Who's gonna be at the right? Who's gonna be left? We want you to do whatever we ask. What's Bartimaeus? Contrast him with the behavior of the godly selected Christian disciples. Look at the blind beggar compared to the disciples. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so they called the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. A bit patronizing, I think, in the latter part of verse 49. You know, there, there, blind man. You might get something out of this guy, get off your feet. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. By the way, when it says he threw his cloak aside, that was an outer garment, a tunic. They dressed differently than we dress today. It wasn't like a jacket, he just took his jacket off and put it on the back of the chair. When you would take off your coat or your cloak or your garment, the Greek word here, he was basically stripping down to his undershirt in public. Okay? Why? Is he just weird? No. It was an act of humility. He was vulnerable. He was exposed. He was showing himself to Jesus. He took off his coat. No one told him to. Jesus didn't tell him to. The disciples didn't tell him to. The crowd didn't tell him to. It occurred to him somehow that I'm going to take off my, it was like a reaction. I'm going to expose myself vulnerably to Jesus. I'm going to present myself in a, in a position of vulnerability. I'm going to not hide before Jesus. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet. This wasn't a stroll. This wasn't a casual walk. And he came to Jesus. And then what does he say in 51. Remember the question he asked the disciples? What do you want from me? He says the exact same question again, in the exact same set of words, same sentence structure. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you immediately. He received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. He's in a vulnerable state. And Jesus meets him in his vulnerable state. And as I was going through this sabbatical period, I got meeting with a spiritual director, a gentleman, older gentleman, who a colleague connected me with, and I've been meeting him a few times and seeking direction for this next chapter of my life and what God would have for me and talking about some of my issues with God. I hadn't heard God speak to me in a long time. I'd read the scripture and I'd prayed, but I hadn't really felt him in my heart for some time. He felt far away. I was troubled by this. And I said to him, Jerry, you've got to help me understand what's going on here. All of my life I've tried to serve God. The time he saved me at 16, I read the Bible cover to cover like four times a year when I was 16. I was one of those fanatics. I was at the Christian bookstore all the time. I was witnessing to people. I loved him. He saved me out of the pit. I, I, my life was going nowhere really fast. And Jesus turned it all around and that passion was there. I gave my life to him in ministry. When I was baptized. I went in the middle of nowhere to pastor and And I've sacrificed everything for him. And he's been present in various ways, but I don't feel him. I've taken care of the people God's given me. I've been serving in Tanzania for 11 years, touching our vulnerable children, and I've loved it, and God's called me, but I'm feeling fatigued, and I'm feeling broken, and I'm feeling he's distant, and I don't know what he has to say to me this season of my life. I don't know what else he wants from me. He's the master, I'm the servant. That's always been my paradigm with God. I serve him. He calls the shots. And Jerry looked at me and he said, have you ever thought about the story of blind Bartimaeus? He gave me this passage. That's why I'm speaking about it today. He said, I think we're going to flip the story around on you, Peter. Have you ever imagined that Jesus is now looking at you and saying, what do you want me to do for you? See, my story has always been to God. What do you want me to do for you? you? Which sounds one level spiritual, because I want to serve him. On the other hand, there, I discovered there's a tremendous arrogance about it. As if somehow, my service was so great that I could somehow help God along. So it was a bit of both. It was, it was divine and it was fallen. I did want to help, but there was an arrogance behind it. And Jesus wanted me to humble myself and say, Peter, sit still. Sit quietly. S- throw off your cloak of service and sacrifice and hard work and pain and suffering and sin throw off your cloak get down to your undershirt and kneel before me and say listen as I look at you and say Peter what do you want me to do for you let the question penetrate your soul and so I've been puzzling over that for over a month now since he posed that question to me Jesus is saying to me what do you want me to do for you and brothers and sisters I don't have the answer today I'm not sure yet what it is I want God to do for me. But what is more important to me than I have the answer is I know he's interested in me in a way I haven't known that before. He's interested in me. He's interested in you. Really interested in you today. More than it would blow your mind if you knew how interested he was in you. I want to tell you a story of a woman named Charlotte Elliott. She was born in 1789, a long time ago. She lived 82 years. For 30 years, she was an artist and a comedian. Her father and grandfather were ministers. She came from a very religious or Christian home. She became very ill at around 30 years of age. I mean, really ill. Like, She was d- unable to walk, unable to stand. She was bedridden for almost the last 50 years of her life. We don't know from the historical records what illness she had, but it was severe. She was in chronic pain, wracked in pain, unable to move. This, this you know, this vibrant, artistic woman was was stopped in her tracks at age 30 by illness. She became angry at God. She heard all the answers because her father and grandfather were pastors and there was all kinds of, you know, church people around the house and she felt God far away and she didn't know where he was or why he was letting this happen. And one day her father had a friend over who was also a pastor who decided to gently speak to her about God and ask her where God was in her heart and her life. Of course, she became very angry very defensive and she rebuked him and told him to get out of the room she didn't want to talk about it she stood in her anger for weeks and then one evening late at night as she lay in her bed of sickness she felt the Holy Spirit talk to her and speak to her about her hard heart about her rebellion about her bitterness about her anger and what had happened to her and she realized that God was calling her to present himself to her just the way she was She realized that God was saying, come to me with your sickness, with your brokenness, with your pain, with your weakness, with your sin, with your trauma, with your alienation, with all that's broken inside of you and in your story. Come to me just as you are. So in the middle of the night, one evening, she got out her pen. By this time, she had written about 150 hymns and poems, and she wrote another one, just as I am. Just as I am. And it was booked, by the way, that song, Just As I Am, many of you have heard it, was first published in a hymnal called the Invalid's Hymnal. Millions would only come to know Jesus as that song was sung through Billy Graham crusades around the world. It was used in his ministry. Just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to you, O Lamb of God, I come. I come, just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to you whose blood to cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come and here's the third stanza just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yes, all I need in you I find, O Lamb of God, I come now I want you to understand the story of this song and think of the woman who wrote it she understood what Bartimaeus did, didn't she that he was her master If you look at the text where it says in verse 51, Rabbi, remember that's what Bartimaeus calls Jesus, Rabbi? It's a personal Aramaic term. The language of the day that they spoke on the street was Aramaic, not Greek. In Aramaic, the word Rabbi, some older translations say Rabboni, it means my master, my teacher. It's a very intimate, personal word. Remember back in verse 35, the disciples called him Master? They used a different word in Greek, which means the master, the teacher. So they asked the teacher, what can we get out of you? He asks, my master, I want to see. So today, is Jesus the master, or is he your master? Is he my master? It's a very personal and intimate cry. And so my question to you and to myself today is, are you willing to be disrupted by him today? I gave you my tale of divine disruption My life went on to do other things in church ministry and later in business, and I was afforded success beyond what I had imagined for reasons I still don't know. God has been kind and generous, and he helped us with getting things going in Tanzania for 11 years now, and many children have been changed. God has shown up and kind to me and my family. And God asks me, and he asks you today, this morning, are you willing to be disrupted by him? Are you willing to be disrupted by him? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And as we wind up, think about Bartimaeus. Blind beggar, side of the road, worst of the worst, disregarded by his people, throws off his cloak and he exposes himself vulnerably, and he says, my teacher, Jesus, Jesus, just as I come, just as I am, I come. This morning I think there are some of you who God is speaking to, who he's been speaking to during the course of this message. And maybe you've never taken the time in your life to pray, to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to come into your life and change you like I did when I was 16, when I was broken, like my father did, like millions of others have done around the world. Maybe he's a new friend to you. He's You know God's out there, the boss upstairs, the man upstairs, or the guy upstairs, whatever you want to think of him as, but he's not your teacher. He's not your master. He's not your Lord. Or maybe you've known him. Maybe you're raised in a church home or a Christian home, and you you sort of know him, but he's afar off. I'm going to ask you today to humble yourself, to regard yourself as a beggar with me. Can we both be beggars at the side of the road today? Can we be in the company of this amazing man named Bartimaeus? Can we be in his company? I like his company better than that of the disciples today. They were just at Jesus for what they could get out of it. Are we at Jesus for what we can get out of it? Or are we broken and humble and vulnerable? We're going to close with this song, and as we do, I want you to think about that imagery of being blind Bartimaeus, broken. Maybe there's parts of your life you've not given over to Christ. Maybe there's pain that's unresolved. Maybe there's brokenness that's unresolved. Maybe a need that's unresolved. I can promise you this from my life, from how my story has intersected his story, he will meet you. No matter what you've come through or what you've done, he is only full of love for you. And he will, like he said to Bartimaeus, your faith has saved you and he will give you your sight. This is the song we're going to sing as the worship team will lead us. I give you my heart, this is my desire to honor you. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. All I have within me, I give you praise. All that I adore is in you. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. And every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your ways in me. Let's sing it together. And then after we've sung it, I'll be leading you in a prayer.